Well, we are looking at more of those penetrating questions of Jesus. 25 or so we've been looking at on Sunday mornings of these questions that are so thought-provoking. They are so pointed. You know, many times as I've been preparing this sermon series, I've been really tempted to have a complimentary series for it because there are many questions that people ask Jesus, and that's kind of an interesting thought to pursue as well. But right now, we're looking at questions that Jesus asked. He asked them of his adversaries. He asked them of the disciples. He asked them as he preached. This is the case here. The latter is the case here when we look at verse number 20 this morning towards the end of it, and we see this question, Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? And the sermon title this morning shortens the question, Then whose shall those things be? Kind of interesting to notice, and maybe you didn't catch this in the reading, but, you know, there are actually two questions that Jesus asks here, and the one leads to the other, and that's why I take the trouble to point this out. Early in the story, we read about a man who's listening to Jesus, and he interposes a a statement to Jesus to which Jesus responds with a question. You have that in verse number 14. Jesus says unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And then, of course, it's that line of thought, it's the thinking that is interposed by this individual that leads to Jesus telling the story of the rich fool. By the way, our question this morning comes from another of Jesus' well-known parables. Just as last week, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we had a question there. Who was neighbor? And this time also, and this parable is common only to Luke, so that's why we take this up when we come to those questions that we find, especially the ones peculiarly in Luke's gospel. Well, the upshot of all of this, what the man says, Jesus' question, and then the ensuing story, the upshot of all of this, if you want to know the general subject that's being discussed, you can look down in your Bible and you can see what that is. It's in verse number 15. He, that is Jesus, said unto him, Take heed and beware of covetousness. So do you know what covetousness is? Because that's really what this whole story is about. Do you think that's just one of those big Bible words that more than likely applies to someone else? Or do you think that God's people need to hear about that? I don't think we can ever exempt ourselves from the warnings of the scriptures. Covetousness is an insatiable desire for more. Always have to have more. Think about that because that's what this message is really about today. And we can learn well, I think, these lessons. There are a lot of ways to do this. You know, over time, so many, so many sermons have been preached from the parable of the rich fool. And I want to take a slightly different approach to this today because I think we can learn well the the lesson of covetousness by actually playing off two people and two parables. Because you may be thinking, well, we only read scripture that covers the parable of the rich fool, and we are only talking about one individual, and that's the rich fool, the man in Jesus' story, the main character. But you know something, if we go on to read more of the context, it becomes plain that Jesus continues to develop this whole idea of covetousness and how God's people really need to respond to things, those things that are all around us. So that when you get to verse number 41, you find that there's actually a second parable, and it comes to us not so much as a story as much as it comes just as a parable in the sense of figurative imagery and speech. So notice verse number 41, Then said Peter unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? 
And we wonder, well, is he harking back to the parable of the rich fool? But then in the next verse, and it says this, And the Lord said unto him, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? And you know, beloved, really, we wouldn't be far out of line if the way we handle this, and this is what I would like to do this morning, is to think about the rich fool in the story of the rich fool and to think about the faithful and wise steward who is developed in some of the verses after this. And if you play those two people and those two stories, if you will, those two parables, the one against the other, you get the opportunity to learn first from the negative. A man whose life was consumed with things. But then you get the opportunity to see how Jesus develops really how the godly life of the faithful and wise steward should be. So let's have a look. The first part of the message, then we're going to look at the rich fool himself, and we find that, as you see there, in verses 16 through 21. There are five characteristics of the rich fool. We don't have a lot of time, obviously, to tarry on any of them, but I want to point them out to you at least. And his approach to possessions. And I would say to you in the first place that he was preoccupied with them. If you look at verses 13 through 15, here's something that's kind of interesting. We go back to verse number one, actually. Let's look at this first and find the context that's going on in the story before this man speaks. And it tells us this in verse number one. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another. Well, that's a lot of people, isn't it? And then it goes on to say, he, that is Jesus, began to speak unto his disciples, first of all, but he was speaking to them all, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So Jesus has gathered around a large, large multitude of people. He's preaching to them, and in the course of preaching to them, this fellow who is in the audience, he just, it's almost like he, hello, puts his hands up, interrupts the sermon as it's ongoing, and here's what he interrupts it with, verse 13. Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. You know, this isn't good. This is really not good because when you look at what Jesus has been talking about, he has truly been talking about some very weighty subjects that people need to consider. Going back to verse 1, the first thing he talks about is hypocrisy. You notice that there he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Well, when we get down to verses number, verse number four and verse number five, we find out he's talking about fear. And fear is really an important subject for us because many times fear, improper fear, grips our lives. Some fear is good. Some fear we have by nature, but sometimes there's improper fear. And Jesus says in verse four, and I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. I'd say that's a fairly important subject for a crowd to tune in on, fearing God in the appropriate way. But then, if those two things you don't think are that important, man alive, look at verse number 10. He says this, And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. And there you have what we commonly think of today as the unpardonable sin. Now look at this, folks. Jesus is talking about hypocrisy and calls the Pharisees out. Jesus is talking about improper fear and directs our attention to the proper fear of God. 
and interjects the gospel really by saying God has power to cast both soul and body into hell. He's the one you need to take into account. He's the one you need to fear. And then he goes on to talk about a sin that can't be pardoned and that's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that make you want to sit up and listen? But here's a guy, you know what? He's light years away. He's not listening to anything that's going on in the service. He's not listening to anything that Jesus says, no matter how serious, no matter how important it is. He's not listening to any of that. The only thing he's really concerned about is the inheritance. And we don't get the background to know exactly what had happened, but maybe he's the older brother, the brother that he's concerned about. And maybe the father has died, and so the older brother has to deal with all of this. And what's going to be involved in this? Well, in the economy of the New Testament and in the background of the New Testament, well, you're going to have land. Almost certainly there's going to be land. On that land may very well be product. That is, maybe there are vineyards, maybe there are crops, maybe there are olive trees, maybe there are animals, livestock. These are the things that would kind of comprise the wealth of the day. Things. Things. Not necessarily unimportant in and of themselves, but to be so consumed, to be so preoccupied with those things that you actually can sit there when the Son of God himself is speaking and preaching on the most serious of subjects, that you're not listening to that message at all, that it's clear that this inheritance, those things is what's on your mind, that you would interrupt Jesus' sermon as he does in verse 13 and says, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. So why do you have a family squabble? And Jesus responds to him and says, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And in the very next verse, we find out why it is that Jesus tells this story. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things. Beloved, it's those things. And here was a man that even though this is before the story starts, it's important to point this out and to include it in these characteristics because it's the whole reason that the story was told. So first of all, we find that this man is preoccupied with things. He's preoccupied with his possessions. The second thing we find is, is that he, didn't, he did not realize, he did not acknowledge that the source of all our possessions is God himself. It all comes from God. Did you know that? You can tell that he certainly doesn't realize that when you look at verse 17. He thought within himself, this man that Jesus describes, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow, what's that? My fruits. And in the next verse, this will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. You know something, beloved, this is pretty sad when you think about an agrarian economy like the New Testament, you think about, as I described, fields and produce and all of that kind of thing, and then you look at all of those olives and you look at all of those grapes and you call them yours. And you don't stop to think about the fact that, well, who made the ground? 
Who gives the sunshine? Who gives the rain or withholds it? You don't stop to think about what James reminds us of in chapter 1 and verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. No, you never really stop to think about the fact that everything that we have comes from God, everything that belongs to God. And it's so sad that we're not teaching that in our society today because that's exactly the mentality mentality that prevails out there, that we don't realize that everything we have, the very breath that we draw, how do you go out there and work those fields? How do you do all of those things? Much less the, the miracle of life that you put seeds in the ground and God allows that seed to gender and to come up and to produce those fruits that you call yours. You know, there's a verse in Proverbs that just nails this, and it nails it in such a way that I think it really captures our attention. The problem is, Proverbs 24, that we often, 21, I'm sorry, in verse number 4, we, we typically only count or only quote the last phrase of the verse, and here it is. You'll see why I bring it up. It says, the plowing of the wicked is sin. So you kind of stop, and you kind of think to yourself, well, in a book, the book of Proverbs and really the Bible as a whole that is so high on the work ethic that teaches us the importance of work that teaches us that we are not entitled that if a man doesn't work especially if a man is able to work he shouldn't eat and the Bible is so strong on the work ethic and so much of that is found in Proverbs then why does it say the plowing of the wicked is sin until we read the first part of the verse which we usually don't quote And it says this, and a high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. So what is it? This man gets up in the morning, never acknowledges that God made the field. Gets up in the morning, goes out, never acknowledges that God gave him the sleep and strength from the night before to go out and do the work. Never thinks about the fact that God provides the sun, the rain, and everything that produces that harvest that he calls his. And in our pride and arrogance, we assume that those things are ours when they are not then thirdly this man is never satisfied or never seems to have enough you look at verse number 17 and it's like he's got a problem he shouldn't have in the question that he asks take a look at verse number 17 down in your text it says and he thought within himself saying what shall i do oh i got a real problem here i've got a bumper crop And I've got all this produce, and I've got these barns, and they're not big enough for me to hoard up all this stuff and put up all this stuff. Wow. That never stops to think, I wonder who I could help. What a novel thought that is. I mean, really, folks, I mean, if you you have a bumper crop and God has, but see, this concept of God is not in his life. That's the whole point here. But to think about this for a moment and say, well, if God has sent something in, especially if God has sent an overabundance in, if God has sent me more than I need, he must want me to do something with that. Did you ever think about that? What a novel thought that is, but it's true. But this fellow doesn't think that way at all. In fact, he's thinking about the problem, and he comes to the solution that the problem is that he'll just tear down those barns that he has and he'll build bigger barns it never comes into his mind that God might have given those those things to him for him to do something for God with there's an interesting story that's told by the Russian author Leo Tolstoy he tells a story about 
a successful peasant farmer, so this really fits with where we are. But the man had some success, but he wasn't totally satisfied with his lot. He, he wanted more of everything. So he, one day he received a, a rather unusual offer, and the author in the story of offer in the story was this: that he could have for a thousand rubles. For a thousand rubles, he could have all the ground that he could walk around in a day. And the only catch to the proposition was that he had to be back at his starting point by the time the sun was completely down. He had to be back at his starting point. Well, early the next morning he got up, and you can imagine, he started walking at a fast pace. Can you see yourself in this? By midday, he was pretty tired, but he kept going, kept pushing himself, kept covering more ground. He got to the afternoon, and all of a sudden he realized something. Uh-oh, I am a long way from where I started. That in his haste and in his greed and in his desire for so much, he'd gotten a little overextended, and so he quickened his pace. As he began to watch the sun sink lower and lower in the sky, he began to run. He knew that if he didn't make it back by the time the sun was down, his opportunity to become a bigger landowner would be lost. The sun now finally begins to sink below the horizon. He calls on every bit of strength that he has left in his body. He staggers across the line just before the sun disappears below the horizon. He collapses. He's coughing blood. And several minutes later, he's dead. His servants come and they dig a grave. The grave is about six feet long, deep, and about three, a little over feet wide. The title of Leo Tolstoy's story is, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Never satisfied, this man. Never seems to have enough. Fourthly, he acts like he'll live forever. Look down at verses 19 and 20. You notice he says, I will say to my soul, soul thou hast much goods laid up for. Look at these next two words, many years. Well, who told him he was going to have many years? Do you know that? Honestly, folks, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You don't even know. And I'm not trying to over-dramatize. You don't even know that you're going to make it home from church. You don't. You have every reason to believe you are going to, but you don't know that. This man thinks he'll live forever. He thinks he has many years ahead of him. He may. He may not. But the problem is, is that he pushes every thought of God out of his life. You can imagine this, every time he attends a funeral, it's an opportunity to think, you know, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment, but he pushes that out of his life. How many people around us, how many people maybe even here this morning, how many people listening through some other means, do you find around you or you yourself are like that? God gives these gentle warnings. It's one of the, one of the things that I... I say almost at every funeral towards the beginning or sometime in the message, I'll point out, you know, a funeral's not necessarily a pleasant thing to attend. It's a harsh reminder. You sit there and you look at that casket. But you know something? There's a silver lining in all of that. And that silver lining is God is giving you a message. Maybe he's giving you a wake-up call. 
Maybe he's reminding you of the fact that, you know, we don't all live forever. We don't all have many years. We attend funerals of people who are old, and we attend people of funer- funerals of people who didn't make it to be old. And Psalm 10 and verse 4 says, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. That's the problem. God is not in all his thoughts because he acts like he'll live forever. And finally, if it's not already apparent, he lives for himself. Look at verse 21. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself. That's what this man's life was all about. For himself. That's a pretty small life. This man is the ultimate narcissist. Everything he does is for himself. There's an interesting story in the Daily Bread. I may have told you this story on one other occasion, but it it certainly bears repeating. It's a good one. This story was told by George Truitt. And remember, in the past century, in the first half especially, that George Truitt was a very powerful and well-known Southern Baptist preacher One day he was invited to the home of a wealthy Texan. Of course, Texas is the place. And after the meal, his host, they got up, and he wanted to show him a little bit about the property. He had this vast holding. So he went to where he had a a panoramic-type view and was showing the preacher. He pointed in one direction, and he said, those oil wells that you see punctuating the landscape there, he said, uh, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as you can see, it's all mine. Then he pointed in another direction, and in that direction he had fields, and in the fields he had grain, and he said, that's all mine, and pointed another direction and said, there's herds there, cattle there. He said, oh, that's mine too. And he pointed in the final direction, it was beautiful woods. Oh, something that would just make a hunter's heart. Beautiful woods. He said, that's mine too. Well, he was was expecting Pastor Truett to be duly impressed and to make some acknowledgement of all this great success, but Truett didn't do that. Instead, Truett put one hand on the man's shoulder, and with the other hand, he pointed upward. And his words were this, how much do you have in that direction? The man thought a minute and turned to the preacher and said, I never thought of that. Yeah, see, that's the whole problem. Never thought of anything but himself. All of life was consumed with one interest and one goal in mind. That was himself. God truly was not in all his thoughts. All right, let's go to the other man. We've laid a lot of groundwork now so we can move a little bit more quickly through these things, but let's look at the wise steward who is introduced to us in verse 41, but you see, it's in those intervening verses, as I pointed out, that the Lord continues to develop this whole subject of things and covetousness and how we relate to those things. And we see this, if you look down in verse number 30, which is why I was so anxious for you to see these references to these things in the passage. Look down at verse 30, for it says, for all these things, Do the nations of the world seek after? 
and your heavenly Father knoweth you have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things. You see, if you go back through this chapter and you start underlining these things or the things, you'll see what it is that Jesus is talking about because now what the Lord does when he talks about the second guy, the wise and faithful steward, he introduces a, another concept that you've heard me talk about a lot over the years of my ministry and it's biblical stewardship. I want to remind you of some of the great truths of biblical stewardship because that's what the second parable is and that's what this man, the wise and faithful steward, that's what he exemplifies. So in the New Testament days, what was a steward? Well, the steward was a man who would have responsibility for the affairs of someone else. It might be his property. It might even be his business dealings. He might have even been in traded, empowered to trade for him, as in many of the stories that Jesus told the people were. So in our day, that's a lot of power if you think about it. Maybe he has control of this man's portfolio. He has the ability to trade stocks and bonds for the man. He, he can sell property if he wants to. He has a lot of power, and he's a steward. And usually you'd have a chief steward. We're introduced to those figures in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament because all through the Bible you encounter this whole concept of stewardship. It's someone who manages the affairs of someone else. Now, are you a steward? According to God, yes. What kind of steward is the question? Because God has entrusted whatever you have from him to you. He's given you that. He expects you to manage that not for yourself, not for myself, but for him. This is the whole foundation of biblical stewardship. Jesus told the parable of the talents. Remember in Matthew chapter 25, one guy got five. What was he supposed to do? Well, he was supposed to do something with them, and in fact, he did. He gained five and was recognized for that. One guy got two, and he was supposed to do something with those, and he did. He, he gained two more. You had one guy that went out and hid them, hid the one he got. He was rebuked. So these stories are, are all through the teaching of Jesus about biblical stewardship. Now let's look at five characteristics real quickly of this particular individual. The wise steward, what's he like? Well, first, he recognizes the alluring power of riches. Verse 34, take a look. This statement that Jesus makes surely is embodied by this man, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I mean, folks, have you ever stopped to think about that? Did you ever stop to think about the fact that you might not be bigger than what you're messing with? Did you ever stop to think that if God made, gave you more, it might be more than you could handle? Did you ever stop to think how many people around us are so consumed with things and all of a sudden they find, all of a sudden they find that the things master them instead of them mastering the things? Think about boats for a moment. I have to smile because I grew up with boats. And I heard a guy make a joke one time and say, you know the best two days in the life of a boat? The day you buy it and the day you sell it. And a lot of people can tell you about that, you know. I mean, I just remember this. It's just so imprinted in, on my mind. And, and here we are in central Pennsylvania. We have Raystown Lake. And there's nothing wrong with the boat. Don't get me wrong. We had one. But ours were always like in the 15 to 20 foot range. We never had these big expensive boats. But I remember my friends growing up, a lot of them were rich. They did. And their parents had those things. And it was a beautiful thing to behold, really. 
uh, because they'd have a cabin cruiser, maybe a Chris Craft or something like that, and it might be 35, 40 feet, might be more, 45, 50 feet. You'd go down and you'd have to rent a place in the marina. Now bear in mind, when these folks did this, you didn't just have a, a slip where you pulled the boat in and, and rented that and it was out in the weather. No, 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 this was all roofed. This was all enclosed so that never the rains, never the winds, those things never got to your boat. Whenever you were ready to take your boat out, you simply backed the thing out or however it was and you went out into Charleston Harbor. I remember growing up on those visits to my grandfather, my grandfather on my mother's side. He had, he had a, a cabin cruiser. And I can remember going out on that, on that on one occasion. I can also remember having a pitfall that I wandered in there one day, sort of on my own, and he had the bilge open. And I walked in and fell right in the thing. Wasn't good. But I still have this question in my mind, especially since my dad often hired me to do this for him, taking care of boats, painting the bottom with the anti-fouling paint, building the floating dock for the boat, building the system to winch it up onto the floating dock. And I think about the fact that, you know, boats are fun, but boats are a ton of work. Well, this man realizes the alluring power of riches, and Jesus talks about this when he says, lay not up for yourselves treasure in heaven or on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves breaks through and steal. Instead, he said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal and makes the same point that he makes here for where your treasure is there will your heart be also the captivating the alluring power of riches to reach out and consume your heart to the point that all of a sudden that's what you live for those things secondly we find that this man, the wise steward, he not only recognizes the alluring power of riches, but he determines to put God first. Verse 31, he says, But rather seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Knowing proper biblical stewardship, knowing that everything he has comes from God, knowing that riches can get you into trouble because they can be bigger and more powerful than you are and they can reel you in like a fisherman reels in a big fish and all of a sudden you're caught and under their control knowing all of that he says okay i have a i have something i'm going to settle in my life first and that is who owns all this he comes first because he owns it all these things Thirdly, he keeps an upward gaze. We find this developed in verses 35 through 40. Look at these verses. Let your loins be girded about and your, light sh your lights burning. And yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them sit to sit down and he will come forth and serve them and if he shall come in the second watch or in come in the third and find them blessed are those servants blessed are those servants jesus says and this know that if the goodman of the house had known what hour the thief would come he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through be ye therefore ready also for for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Three duties are prescribed in view of 
the upward gaze. In view of the fact that we live for what's there and not for what's here, and in view of the fact that Jesus is coming again, we have to work because that's what is embodied in the whole concept of a servant. There's work for us to do for God. We should be serving God. If we're not living for here and we're living for there, then it's a pertinent question to ask, what ministry do I have for God? What work am I doing for God? Are you involved in something you're doing for God? Hopefully through your local church. Sometimes we go beyond that, but it's a valid question to ask. He says we're to watch. Are we living in expectation? Are our loins girded about? Are lights burning? You know, if you're expecting someone in, you leave the light on many times. But you know, one of the hardest things to do is to do both of those things while you do the third thing, and that is wait. Verse 36, And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord. Waiting's hard, beloved. Do you ever figure that out? Waiting's hard. Sometimes God wants us to wait. This man keeps an upward gaze, and he can do this because he is not consumed with these things as the other man was. Fourthly, he acknowledges the concept of biblical stewardship. Verses 42 and 43 make that plain. That that's what the Lord's talking about. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, the wise and faithful steward. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. He acknowledges the concept of stewardship. And lastly, unlike the other man, this man lives to please his Lord. Verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom when his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. And he goes on and he develops that in verses 43 through 48. You know, you're talking about the concept of biblical stewardship, and I was thinking about a story that I read about John Wesley, and I had never encountered this story before. And to be truthful with you, I kept thinking to myself, do I have time to use this story in the message? And discarding one thing and discarding another thing, thinking about how much time do I have, and I just couldn't get away from this story. I've never heard this story before. I want to tell it to you. So one day, some people rushed up to John Wesley, and they said, your house burned down. Does that touch a chord, Coach? I can't imagine. John Wesley's response was to look at them and say, that's impossible. They said, no. They said, your house burned to the ground. He looked at them again and said, it's impossible. They said, we saw it with our own eyes. Your house is gone. He looked at them the third time and said, that's impossible. He said, you see, I don't own a house. God gave me a place to live. I only manage that house for him. If he didn't put the fire out, then that's his problem. He'll have to put some, me somewhere else. I got to thinking about that, and I thought, I, 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 how many of us think that way? Do I think that way? There's a lot of room for us to grow, isn't there? There certainly is. John Wesley certainly understood the concept of biblical stewardship 
So what we've done this morning, folks, just to summarize briefly, is we've pitted the negative against the positive in order that we might first learn from the mistakes of one man and then see how the other man did it right. <clears throat> and this was often the style of Jesus' teaching. In Luke chapter 16, where we have not looked, there is the story, a parable, of the unjust steward. You remember him? He was the guy who squandered and wasted his master's things. The thing that he overlooked was this. And this is what I have to ask you to think about in closing. This is the thing that Christians overlook, and this is the thing that lost people around us overlook. What he never stopped to consider is that there is accountability. Every steward has to answer. The parable of the talents, the Lord came back. He said to the guy with five, what'd you do? He said, I gained five. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He looked at the guy with two. He said, what'd you do? He said, I gained two more. He said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He looked at the one guy. And he said, what'd you do with the one you got? Oh, he said, I was afraid of you because you're an austere man. He said, I took it and wrapped it in a napkin and buried it the ground. He said, thou wicked and slothful servant to that man there is accountability there was accountability in the story in Luke chapter 16 verse 1 about that steward that squandered all those things and all of a sudden the boss came home one day and you can listen to the words yourself in Luke chapter 16 he was accused to his master of wasting his goods and the master called him and said unto him how is it that I hear this of thee give an account of thy stewardship for thou mayest no longer be steward We overlook accountability, and in fact, there's a second story in Luke chapter 16. We argue over whether it's a parable or not. It doesn't really matter. If you take it as a parable, then what it means is only worse. It's the story of the rich man. He fared sumptuously every day. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? And didn't think about how he could help poor Lazarus that sat at his gate and was so poor that he had nothing so poor that he had no medical attention, so poor that he had in humiliation because dogs were considered, not like they are in our society, to let those dogs come and lick his wounds. It was the only antiseptic that he could afford. And this rich man ignored that, stored up all these things. But like the rich fool, the day came when God said, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And the rich man died and lifted up his eyes, being in torments, but when Lazarus died, the angels whisked him away to Abraham's bosom. One man lived knowing that there was accountability, knowing that there was a world beyond. And one man lived as if there weren't a God and there were no one ever to give an account to. But the Bible says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So since we have, in this message, played the one against the other, the positive against the negative, I want to tell you about two other people in closing and let you ask yourself this question because it asks us, as it does in Luke 12:42, when we look at that verse, who then, this is another of Jesus' questions that's adjoined to all of this, who then is that faithful and wise steward? I want you to decide which of these two people you're most like. Are you most like Bruce Parker? Or are you most like Alan Barnhart? 
and let me quickly tell you their stories. The phone rings one day in the pastor's office. The pastor picks up the telephone, and the voice on the other end says, Hello, is this pastor so-and-so? Called his name. He said, Yes, it is. The voice on the other said, Well, this is the tax department. I guess we would say the IRS. We wonder if you could help us. And the pastor's got these butterflies in his stomach. I mean, you know, it's just you don't need a call like that. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Why is the tax department calling him and so nervously he responds to the caller I'll do the best I can man says do you know a man by the name of Bruce Parker pastor says well why yes he goes to my church in fact he's a member here the man from the tax department says did he donate ten thousand dollars to the building fund pastor greatly relieved of course the agent can't see this on the other end but the pastor's greatly relieved the butterflies have flown away a slight smile comes across his face and his answer is he will (laughs) a lot of folks like that around Alan Barnhart he's an American businessman He owns and runs a business called Barnhart Crane and Rigging. It was valued at some $250 million. When he was in school, he tells the story of reading the Gospels and being impressed beyond words with how much Jesus had to say about wealth and how he warned about wealth and how he called people to generosity. He made a determination in those days. This was before he ever had anything. And I'll tell you something, folks. This is the time to make that decision because it's harder later. He was determined that when he went into business, he would not allow any financial success that he gained to become a source of stumbling block or spiritual failure to him. So when he and his brother inherited the family business, they made a pact together. They decided that they would set for themselves a reasonable salary, a salary that enabled them to be comfortable in the middle class. Their needs would be met, but they didn't chart a course to become rich. They made that decision that that's the salary they would receive and not anything more, and that any profits beyond that that the business made would be given to the ministry. And especially, they were interested in ministries that were helping in the underdeveloped parts of the world. In the first year, they were able to give away $50,000. In the second year, I'm giving you years, they were able to give away $150,000. By 2005, I'm going to tell you months, they were giving away a million dollars a month. They also determined by way of a trust that 99% of the ownership of the company would be placed in a trust that would ensure that when they have departed all proceeds from the firm would continue to be invested in ministry. Allen says he doesn't regret his decision to limit his income. He said he and his wife have been able to visit the projects that they supported and seen the impact in people's lives 
And Alan makes this statement, giving is fun. You know, Jesus agreed with that. He said, God loves a cheerful giver. I saw the other day, actually it was this week, Mark Zuckerberg, who is the founder and CEO of Facebook, or the head of it, whatever title he gives himself now, I saw a little note that so far this year he had sold north of $3 billion in Facebook stock. That he owns some 70 some billion not million billion dollars in Facebook stock in fact this week he overtook someone else and became the third richest man in the United States so I was kind of interested he overtook Warren Buffett now that's a that's an accomplishment so it caught my attention and I was reading the article and what in the world did he sell 3.0 seven or whatever it was, billion, billion, billion dollars of Facebook stock. Why did he do that? And further in the article, it pointed out that he had done this because he and his wife have, found, have some charitable organization. Now, I'm not under any illusion that Mark Zuckerberg is a believer, and I don't mean any unkindness by that, but I think everyone knows the liberal and left leanings of Facebook. But the article went on to say that Zuckerberg and his wife plan, by the time they are gone, to leave 99% of their Facebook stock. I'm just impressed sometimes by people who don't know the Lord, but yet they see that they've been given this incredible wealth that's almost beyond the ability to understand or even fathom but yet some of them seem to realize that they have that and they can do something with that beyond just enriching themselves. What about you? Who then is that wise and faithful steward? You a little bit more like Bruce Parker? A little shifty. Everybody thinks you do one thing with your money, but the truth is that's not what you do. A little shifty. Because your agenda is not God's agenda. Or, like Alan Barnhart, yes, God, thank you that you've given me enough to meet my needs. But if you're sending me more, then I have to wonder how you want me to invest that in the kingdom of God.